Welcome to the Data Pulse. I'm your host, Anika. In this podcast, I dive into the growing role that data science plays in the latest biomedical innovations. Join me as I go behind the scenes and check the pulse with domain experts and rising stars who are leading advances in data-driven human health. I'm here today with Dr. Daphne Kohler, who is the founder and CEO of Incitro, a company aiming to transform drug discovery through predictive models that draw upon machine learning and biology at scale. Prior to Incitro, Dr. Kohler led a paradigm shift in educational technology through co-founding Coursera, and she served as chief computing officer at Calico, a company tackling aging. She was a professor of computer science with an appointment in the Department of Pathology at Stanford University from 1995 to 2012, where she now remains an adjunct professor. Daphne, it's a true honor to have you here with me today. Thank you for joining me. It's a great pleasure to be here, Anika. Thank you so much for having me. You have had a prolific career spanning computer science and biomedicine, academia and industry. Throughout, you have been intentional about sitting right at the intersection of each of the traditionally siloed worlds of tech and biology. What has motivated your interest in this intersection? When I first got into this space, it was around 99, 2000 as the first large-ish data sets that would be considered very small today, but were coming out. These were the first microarray data sets for a few dozen samples, followed then by the first human genome. And at that early stage for me, it was really mostly about data sets that were more interesting than the ones that were available to machine learning at that point in time. That's when we were still all working on things like the 20 news groups, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's uh, news articles from 20 different news groups, and we were figuring out algorithms that could classify them into one or the other. And it wasn't really very interesting, and it wasn't very aspirational. So my first interest in biology was just because I thought the problems were more interesting. But then over time, I began to genuinely get enamored by the beauty of biology and its complexity, and also by the ability of applying machine learning in a domain that can really impact human life and human health. And that's what really kept me in that space for all these years. In addition to that real-world impact and actually helping the lives and the healthcare of patients, why are biology and medicine appropriate application areas for some of the latest advances in machine learning? One of the things that I've seen happening over the last few years is that the idea of big data in biomedicine is finally becoming a reality. Going back to those early days of 2000, 2001, as I said, a largish data set was considered um, a few dozen samples. If you had a couple hundred samples, a couple hundred individuals, you considered yourself lucky and in possession of a really large data set. And now we have data sets that at the human level have sometimes tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of individuals very with very rich data around them. And on the cellular side, if you're interested more on the uh, biology side of it, there is incredibly large data sets with um, millions, hundreds of millions of cells. And so all of a sudden, one can really do very interesting machine learning. But at the same time, what we find is that the challenges that this domain poses are, while not 
completely different, but are still quite distinct from the ones that you get when you tackle more traditional machine learning applications, such as computer vision or natural language processing. So there is a lot to draw on, but also it requires the development of a new set of methods that are very intellectually exciting. Definitely. You are now in your third industry position at Incitro, which is preceded by your time at Calico and at Coursera, as I mentioned. How have your prior experiences informed your current effort to build out in Citro? And here I'm particularly interested in how your learnings from leading a tech company have been able to actually guide the way you've approached in Citro. So one common thread that I've seen throughout these three experiences that I think is really important is the critical nature of building the right team and the right culture. When I first went into industry, I remember one of my first interviews with a potential senior recruit who asked me, as a co-founder of Coursera, what would you like the culture to be? And I was sitting there, you know, internally kind of scratching my head saying, what's culture and why do you need it? I mean, you go to work in the morning, you do your work, you come home. I mean, what what is this culture thing? And what I learned through my experiences is just how critical culture is in um, getting people to work together in, in a way that is much more, where, this, where the whole is much larger than the sum of the parts and getting people to take the right actions, the right decisions on their own without having to refer to a higher authority every time. I mean, it's so intrinsic to getting a company to move quickly and in the right direction. And so the idea of how do you build that culture? How do you hire people who can live that culture and make it even better? I think that's something that I learned um, that was is absolutely critical. Related to that is the notion of building a team and making sure that you have the right people in the company who really want to work together as a single team. In terms of differences and some learnings that are a little bit more transferring, I think, of ideas is that in the tech world, things work very quickly. Um, you have, you know, three you know, quarterly goals, you have bi-weekly sprints, you have weekly readouts or daily readouts of, of key performance indicators. And so things are very, very quick in terms of the cycle. And in the biotech world, things just can't move that quickly because biology only moves so fast. Um, you know, the experiment takes what it takes. You can't hurry the cells along and it just, you have to wait it out. And the technology development is also much more finicky. It can fail for reasons that are sometimes out of your control just because the cells are just variable. And so you have to develop a certain level of patience in the biotech world that is very different to the pace of the tech world. But what I did try to take away from the tech side is to what extent can we take some of that rapid progress, the notion of a minimum viable product, or in this case, maybe a minimum viable experiment, and failing fast in the sense of you try something quick, and if it doesn't work, you go and you figure out a different way to do this. I think those insights that the tech world has adopted could be beneficial in the biotech world as well. 
Right. So a lot of the rapid iteration that we see is possible in tech, you're saying is also potentially applicable to some of the biomedical applications that we might want to tackle. Yes. I mean, that's the hope. And it's also, I think, potentially feasible for us because what we're trying to build as a company is really a hybrid between tech and biotech. We are developing an engineered approach, if you will, to the drug discovery process where a lot of the pieces that we're building are designed to be performed in a repeatable, reproducible way with the use of, you know, robots that help perform experiments in a robust way and at scale with the incorporation of machine learning, often even in the inner loop of experiments so that the machine learning can help look at the cells as the experiment is ongoing and guide the experiment in a more productive direction. So the company really is a hybrid of biotech and tech. And so these cycles that if you think of them are intermediate between the very rapid iteration that you see in traditional tech and the much slower pace that you often see in biotech, they seem to suit the company that we're looking to build. I know Incitro aims to predict earlier on which drugs are likely to be effective for which patients, as this is a key hurdle right now that leads to a lot of resource use and resource expenditure that may be unnecessary and actually inhibitory for the biomedical industry. Incitro relies on large-scale data sets and algorithms that can efficiently learn from them. And in a sense, exactly how you described, it's somewhat flipping the traditional biotech paradigm of you first run an experiment, collect the data, and then analyze it on its head. Could you expand upon a little bit more of how specifically Incitro is capitalizing on the convergence of advancements in ML to bring better therapies to patients faster? So we think of the drug discovery and development journey as a 15-year trajectory where you start out with an idea of the disease that you're looking to tackle. And then in the end, if you're really, really lucky, you have an approved drug. And that currently happens at about a 5% success rate. And the question is, in, in during this process, in every step of the way, um, there are critical decisions that you need to make about um, when you get to certain forks in the road, where if you're lucky, one of the paths may lead you to a successful drug and many, many others will not. Right now, in many cases, those decisions are taken by gut intuition, historical heuristics, um, model systems that are not particularly reliable or predictive. And the question is, can we do this differently? Can we think about these different forks in the road and build predictive models that are engineered to make those predictions as reliably as one possibly can? And you can think of those forks as coming from the very beginning, which is actually where we're currently focused, where the question is, for instance, which target, if perturbed in a human and in which population of humans, will actually meaningfully modulate a disease? And that's one decision point. There's decision points further down the line about which specific chemical entity you might want to tackle or what is the right biomarker that will allow you to judge whether your drug is working at um, an earlier point in time rather than having to wait, you know, three to five years to see if people are getting better or not, or if if you've managed to reduce the death rate, the mortality rate. So all of these are decisions that you have to make. And for many of them, not for all of them, you can imagine that a deliberately trained machine learning model 
might be able to make better decisions than these historical heuristics or gut instinct. So the place that we started out, as you mentioned earlier, is the decision on which target do I want to modulate and in which patient population. And the reason we picked that one is because it's the most significant cause of failures in clinical trials today. The majority of clinical trials that fail do so in phase two and phase three, and they do so because of lack of efficacy. So how do we make that prediction about whether a particular modulation of of a target in, in a person will meaningfully change the course of the disease? And you have to do that, remember, without the ability to generate training data that actually intervenes in a person by modifying a particular gene because you don't get to do that experiment. Mm -hmm. So how do you solve that problem is actually at the core of what we do at Incitros to turn that into a machine learning problem with a data set that could actually be used to train such a model. Right. So it sounds like relying on pattern recognition in really what sounds like all three of the axes that I've traditionally heard are the key decision points in early stage drug development, which are identifying the disease that is appropriate to target, identifying which target perturbing would have the biggest effect on, and then identifying which molecules or which modality would be most effective. And you're able to rely on data in in all three of these axes to really make an informed decision that is less about heuristics, as you mentioned. Well, to be honest, which disease would be good to work on, I think, has multiple elements that have to do with strategy and um, and market conditions and unmet need and existence of appropriate model systems and so on that we haven't quite figured out how to turn that into a machine learning problem. But the other two, yes, both the question of which targets we want to modulate in which population of humans and uh, not only which therapeutic modality, which is often a, you know, there's relatively straightforward rules of thumb on which uh, therapeutic modality might be appropriate for certain kinds of targets, but rather which specific chemical entity you might want to design. And so now it turns into a design problem there's been some pretty exciting work in the last couple of years on using machine learning to actually design compounds of different modalities. And I think that's an area that's likely to grow in the coming years. Right. So if you think about broader scale, how you sort of approach these, what elements to you would make a biomedical problem well-suited for a machine learning task? And on the flip, what classes of machine learning algorithms have seen widespread adoption or you think might see adoption in the coming years? So I think there are, the which questions are suitable for machine learning and how do you take a problem in biology and turn it into a machine learning problem? That's actually where a lot of the art and skill comes in because many of these problems don't immediately jump out as a machine learning question. And this is, I think, different in many ways to some of the problems that people think about in the clinical arena, like diagnosis, where there's been a tremendous amount of progress also in the last few years, where it's pretty obvious how do you 
take the problem of reading an x-ray and producing a diagnosis of, um, you know, cancer or identifying a particular lesion in the image, those are easily defined as machine learning problems. doesn't make them easy to solve, but um, at least they're easily defined as machine learning problems. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many people have gravitated towards that as a set of problems because they the problem specification is very straightforward. Again, it doesn't mean the solution's easy. Uh, what is different about drug discoveries that many of the questions don't naturally define themselves as um, machine learning questions. And so how what are the questions that you ought to answer is really um, one of the questions that we think about a lot at Incitro. And when we talk a little bit later about bilingual culture, I think it's one of the things that makes a difference in bringing together people from very different backgrounds is that you really answer different questions, not only come up with better answers. Now, there is no single answer to that question. You really need to sit and think very carefully about the, the spectrum of uh, drug discovery, the trajectory that you take from beginning to end, and ask yourself which pieces really can be formulated meaningfully as machine learning questions, and which of them either have existing data that can be used to train the model, or in which cases are there technologies that one can bring to bear that will allow sufficient relevant data to be produced. And that's one of the, to me, the uh, enablers for building in Citro today that was not actually true three to five years ago, is that we actually have the technology today designed by uh, many, many smart bioengineers, cell biologists, and so on, that enables large amounts of high-quality data to be generated on spec and then used to train machine learning models. That's, in fact, the core of what we do at Incitro is that interplay between the design of machine learning models and the creation of large data sets that can help inform and train those models. So that's um, to your first question. Coming now to the second part of your question, which is which machine learning algorithms have been used and will be used going forward, I think we're in the midst of an interesting transition. If you look backwards, a lot of the work on the application of machine learning in this space has really focused on questions that can be well formulated as very um, sort of obvious um, prediction problems. You have a, an input and you're looking to predict an output. And many of the diagnosis questions that I mentioned earlier fall neatly into that category. You have the x-ray image as an input, you have the physician's diagnosis as a target output, and you're trying to replicate the process by which a physician makes that call. Uh, and that's a place where machine learning really shines because that's where most of the work that's happened over the last decades in the space, um, most of the techniques have gone in, in that direction. Where I think we're starting to see a transition is that there are a lot of important problems, certainly in the biomedical space and also elsewhere, that don't neatly fit into um, a straightforward prediction problem where you have enough data to build a model. They 
are either data poor, so you need uh, you have a limited amount of data, and you need to bring in prior knowledge. You need to bring in data from related problems, what's called multitask or transfer learning, and uh, many of them also require. Um, that a human be able to extract insight from the model that's been constructed because the goal isn't just to make good predictions, it's also to gain some scientific understanding. So over time, we're getting, I think, an increased focus on machine learning techniques that go beyond the straight input-output mapping, but go more into uh, multitask learning, zero-shot learning, semi-supervised learning, and various things that are more squishy in some cases in terms of the problem specification, but are critically important in terms of making a difference in the space. It sounds like you are able to master the repertoire of both machine learning concepts and the biomedical problems and questions that you are addressing in parallel with each other, which brings me to this curiosity I have of this term bilingual, which you have called yourself fluent in both the language of biotech and machine learning. would love to learn a little bit about how you think about problems. When you're faced with a new biomedical question, are there certain critical reasoning skills or frameworks that you consistently employ? In order to really grapple with one of those problems in a meaningful way, you need to bring in ideas from core biology and understanding of core biological processes. You need to bring in knowledge and insight about the tools that have been developed on the biology side, technologies like cell engineering um, or um, cell differentiation into an appropriate lineage or measuring cells using different modalities. And you need to bring in ideas from machine learning and uh, different machine learning methods. And so the willingness to sort of encompass um, a breadth of techniques, recognizing that no single person will be an expert in any single one of them, I think is what's absolutely critical to being successful in this area. Right. As a computer science and biology major, I am right on board. (laughs) We need more like you, Anika. We really do. It's uh, the number of people with that shared background who really can speak fluently in both is unfortunately way more limited in the demand. And, you know, I'm self-taught in that way, in that I was trained as a computer scientist and everything I learned in biology, I learned by reading, talking to people. And I will admit that there's gaps in my knowledge because there's certain areas that I have not had the opportunity to learn about. And sometimes People look at me and say, how could you not know this? It's so basic. It's like, well, I never learned biology properly. Um, and I think as we create a um, this field that I'm thinking, um, I'm currently calling digital biology, which is this integration of techniques that allow you to read biology at an unprecedented scale, interpret what we see using machine learning, and then write biology in the sense of causing biological systems to behave other than they normally would, you really need to um, have, uh, I think that field is going to be tremendously important over the coming decades. And we have not nearly the number of people that we need to make that field grow to where 
to, to its full potential without training more people like you. I appreciate the fact that humility is a core tenet, as you described, as at the intersection. It's really rare right now to find people who might be experts in both. But I also think that a lot of the power lies in leaning on folks that might be experienced in one realm and and have that open-mindedness to learn about and identify the convergence between the old and the new from what they've experienced. Something that stuck with me that you mentioned earlier was the ability to contribute that someone who might be more of, say, a novice in the biology area, but may have some insights into some of the machine learning aspects, would be able to bring in the sense of the boundaries would perhaps be fewer or even non-existent. And so the the realm of possibility in some senses might be extended. I think that's absolutely true. And I would say that it goes both directions. You have people who are naive in one area and experts in the other. And what you really need to do is to get them talking to each other in a collaborative way with a lot of respect. And like I said, a lot of humility in terms of recognizing that there's a lot about the other person's discipline that you don't know and and vice versa. And that mindset is something that we really focus on extensively at Incitro in hiring people who are like that, and that's the environment that they want to be in. Sounds like a very diverse ecosystem to be a part of. It's diverse and it's fun because there's people in your ecosystem that are experts in things that you know nothing about. What we've done is we've structured the company so that the work is all done in these cross-functional teams. So if you have a project that relates to, for instance, imaging of cells, you're going to have a cell biologist who understands what the cells that you're imaging ought to be and what you need to do to them to get the kind of uh, phenotypes that you're looking for. You're going to have a microscopist. You're going to have a uh, process engineer who helps you bring this to the level of scale that you need in terms of automation. You have a data engineer who can help build the data pipelines that are necessary to do this at scale. And you have the machine learning uh, people who can look at the cells and make use of the information to make predictions about whatever it is that you're looking to predict. And so that type of cross-functional team really working together without any boundaries provides incredible learning opportunities for everyone involved. And it also creates a very different type of culture where we're all in it together. Right. And each complementing each other's perspectives. Absolutely. So let's shift gears a little and talk about the future of drug discovery. From your experience, what do you think the coming years are going to look like with technologies that yield big data biology and the paradigm of designing experiments that are well-suited for machine learning tasks becoming more commonplace? I'm hoping that that will, in fact, be the future of drug discovery. I think that there is still the vast majority of companies out there, certainly in the larger pharma companies, which are big shifts and hard to shift course. But even in many of the smaller biotechs, there is still very much a more traditional mindset, which, you know, to be fair, has been very successful in discovering many new drugs and uh, making uh, the lives of many people considerably better. But at the same time, I think we're also 
all aware of the diminishing productivity of pharmaceutical R&D and the fact that we need better ways to discover drugs. And so how do we uh, bring together a new toolkit from both the biology side and the machine learning side into this industry? It requires doing something which is very rarely done in traditional biopharma companies, which is giving the machine learning and data science people an equal seat at the table, not only in how do we solve a problem, but in what problem ought we to be solving in the first place. In most biopharma companies today, um, you have a a bioinformatics team that's kind of sitting somewhere in the organization. And when you've fully decided what the experiment ought to be and have generated the data, you ship it over to them and say, could you please help me analyze this? Mm-hmm. And sometimes they do that really well, but think about how much more impact they could have if they were brought in earlier into this process, not only in designing a better experiment, but as I said, in figuring out what problems could be solved um, in an altogether different way by um, by combining those different methods. And that's the kind of company that I think we really ought to be building. I would love to end learning about your perspective, just reflecting on your career, which has spanned, as I mentioned, both academic and industry science. What threads have you consistently pulled and which lessons do you plan to carry forward with you? So I think one thread that really permeates everything is the importance of who you work with. Uh, I think the notion of working at the boundary of disciplines is something that I very much value because I find that there is often a particular richness there in terms of ideas that no one has uh, necessarily thought of before and so it might be particularly impactful. The boundary of disciplines are often underpopulated because of the effort that's required to develop enough of a working vocabulary on both sides to really make a difference. And so I think that's an area where if I were recommending something to a, if I'm recommending a career journey to a young person, I would say those are places that are often depleted for talent and there is a certain energy barrier to overcome in becoming proficient enough in uh, the two or more disciplines that are required, but it's very well worth the effort to get there. And I guess the last thing I would um, suggest that I've learned is the willingness to think big. If there's one thing I regret in uh, certain stages of my career is that I was kind of on a on a treadmill doing the same old thing and it was going really well. And I didn't think about, okay, what is it that I could do that is actually really hard where there's a big risk of failure, but if it were successful, then it could be transformative. So if I were to make one other final recommendation to a young person embarking on their career, or not even a young person, to anyone who is still interested in making a difference is think big and be willing to take on challenges where there is a reasonable chance that you will not be successful, but the rewards to you and to society if you are successful 
are potentially much, much larger. On that empowering note, I want to thank you, Daphne, for your time. It's been splendid having you here today. Thank you so much, Anika. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of The Data Pulse. If any of the terms used in today's conversation were foreign to you, feel free to check out the podcast glossary where I've included definitions and links to resources that my guests have shared. Be sure to tune in next week to once again get a sneak peek into the pulse of data-driven biomedicine.